Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. This is Babbage, a weekly conversation about technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on this week's show... Augmented reality is predicted to overtake virtual reality as the technology of choice. So what are the innovative ways it might be used by consumers and businesses? You can project a digital version of a human body into space in front of you, and then you can just sort of reach out with your hands and pull the heart out and have a look and sort of put it back in the chest where it goes. And Dave Elkington, the chief executive of Inside Sales, joins us to discuss how artificial intelligence can be used to boost human productivity. We're giving the intuition that's developed from a, a very mature, very experienced sales leader, and we're providing that through data and through machine learning and through artificial intelligence to somebody who's 26 years old. But first, with the world the way it is right now, escaping this reality by diving into a virtual one may seem like an exciting, perhaps even necessary, prospect. But while virtual reality has been poised to change our lives for decades now, its close cousin, augmented reality, is now expected to do so sooner, and perhaps even more successfully. Here to explore when, how, and why is our science correspondent Tim Cross and Tom Standage, our deputy editor. Hello, Tom. Hello, Tim. Hello. Hi, Ken. Tim, let me start with you. For anyone who didn't play Pokemon Go last year, can you explain how augmented reality works? Is there anyone who didn't play Pokemon Go last year? The easiest way to think about it, it's a sort of close cousin to virtual reality, except that reality means completely different things. So the idea of virtual reality is to drop you into a fake computer-generated world. The idea of augmented reality is to keep you in the real world, but put lots of useful computer-generated stuff on top of it. And you'd have to wear glasses. That's how it's often portrayed, but you don't necessarily have to. I mean, you mentioned Pokemon Go, which is augmented reality done through a smartphone. So it uses the phone's camera to show the real world on the phone's screen and then puts the Pokemon or whatever else you're interested in onto the screen that way. But the sort of ultimate goal of all this stuff, yes, is a pair of smart glasses that you put on and they overlay all this useful stuff onto your view of the world. Now, before I hear about some of the practical, mundane applications, I want to talk about the more wild, speculative science fiction things. So let me turn to Tom. Tom, impress me. Where are we going to be in 10 years? Why is this so important? Oh, 10 years? You've got to think further ahead than that. So if you read science fiction, it is absolutely sort of accepted in a lot of sci-fi that we go from... AR glasses of the kind that, that Tim's been uh, hearing about to smart contact lenses to basically implants in our heads that just give us a head-up display on the world and allow us to adjust how the world appears. So we might have, you know, infrared vision or hyperspectral vision or, or whatever. Who knows uh, how these things might work? But 
the general idea is that this is the sort of evolution of the computer interface. You don't tend to have computers in science fiction. You tend to have people who talk to the building or the spaceship they're in, and the information that they want appears in their field of vision automatically. So it's this sort of future of computing model where instead of dealing with a device through a screen, you deal with the computing happens in the world itself. And augmented reality is absolutely central to that. My favourite example is a book called The Prefect by Alistair Reynolds, who has AR in quite a lot of his books. But in, in that world, he talks about a sort of very wealthy society living in the asteroid belt where everyone is very obsessed with fashion and the fashion is all virtual. In fact, it's augmented virtual reality fashion. So you can might choose to have, I don't know, a, a little band of fairies flying around your head as, as a halo. That might be what was terribly fashionable this year. Of course, it wasn't really there. I just see it and everyone else who sees you sees it through their augmented reality implants that are projecting their clothes and their accessories and all these other things onto the world. And of course, what happens in the book is that this whole system goes wrong and everyone is forced to deal with actual reality. Oh, how, how dull. Let me bring up actual reality, which sometimes can be exciting too. Tim, tell me, between Tom's vision and between my mundane view of the world, how are companies using the technology to do interesting things? At the moment, there are several companies out there who've been making what are essentially simple AR glasses for quite a few years now. And they tend to be used in business. So they're, they're smart glasses, you put them on, they've got a little projector attached to the arms, and they project what looks like a little flat screen in, in the corner of your vision. So if you're a warehouse worker, say, they'll tell you, you know, what the next thing is you need to, to go and get and what the most efficient route is to go and get there. Or if you're working in a factory, they'll give you a list of step-by-step instructions on you know, how to do maintenance on a jet engine or, or something like that. They've been around for a while. The most impressive piece of kit that's out there at the moment probably is something made by Microsoft called the HoloLens, which rather than just projecting little two-dimensional pictures into one corner of your vision, it has sensors that let it detect the world around it. And it uses that and a sort of nifty display technology to project three-dimensional illusions into your visions. Microsoft calls them holograms. They're not really holograms, but that gives you an idea of how they work. Okay, so for the HoloLens, I've tried one. It is very big, it is very heavy, it is a bit clunky, and it looks weird. Are people really going to be using it? We've kind of been here before where, you know, Google, obviously, with Google Glass, they tried to bring, a, again, a quite a simple AI headset in many ways to the masses, and it didn't work because some people thought it looked silly, some people thought it was a bit creepy to have, you know, people with computers mounted on their faces recording them all the time. So Microsoft's strategy is to go in through business first. So they'll show you all these nifty applications for business use. So one they're quite keen to show off is for people learning anatomy, you can project a digital version of a human body into space in front of you, and then you can just sort of reach out with your hands and pull the heart out and have a look and sort of put it back in the chest where it goes. And that gets around some of those problems about it looking a bit silly because at work, people can force you to wear things whether they look silly or not. You sort of don't have to worry about social acceptability as much. But I think that social acceptability is going to be exactly the thing that determines when or if this thing takes off as a piece of consumer technology. Tom, you followed the Google Glass debate What was it about that product as well as these new products that suggest the earlier one didn't and these new ones might? I don't think it's really fair to say Google Glass was augmented reality. I think for, for something to be augmented reality, it needs to be painting stuff into the world and it needs things like proper head tracking and position sensing. And position sensing indoors is really hard because you can't use GPS. And even if you could, GPS isn't that accurate. So what um, Pokemon Go does, which is very clever, is it, it sort of uses visual cues in the environment and it uses the uh, motion sensors in the phone. And it's a hard computational problem to work out where you are inside a building. There are lots of competing positioning technologies 
technologies. But most people, in fact, including the creator of Pokemon Go, think that the long-term answer is actually to use computer vision technology, where you have multiple cameras in a device or on a headset that figure out where you are. And HoloLens has a separate positioning system that figures out, it's called inside-out um, positioning or something like that, where it basically figures out what's going on so that it can pull off this, this trick. So Google Glass, I kind of would, would put it to one side for two reasons. One, it was a solution looking for a problem, and people thought it was recording all the time when it wasn't. And secondly, it's not really representative of what people are trying to do with AR because it didn't have, as I say, this ability to kind of work out where you were looking, where you were, and then create a realistic illusion uh, through the glasses. And I think those those technological problems are really hard to solve. I mean, the thing about HoloLens that makes it unusual is it does this all itself. It's a self-contained computer. You don't have to plug it into anything like you do with a lot of VR headsets. And that's really hard to do. That's one reason why it's so bulky. The amount of data that's thrown off by its positioning sensors is so enormous that Microsoft had to go out and design a special chip to process it because they couldn't find anything off the shelf to, to, to do the job. Um, Google's working on a technology called Tango, which takes all that positioning stuff and puts it into a smartphone. And in fact, there's one you can go out and buy now made by Lenovo. The problem is, even with a really big smartphone battery and a cutting-edge processor, the, just the computational task of doing this is so difficult that the phone you know, slows to a crawl after a few seconds and you drain the battery incredibly quickly. So I think technology is one big problem. Okay, so if in the future we all are wearing a headset of some sort that is giving us an augmented reality experience... Do you think it's possible that if we all have a very slightly different reality, we will lose the common features of human experience that bind us together? I don't know. I mean, there's, there's a long history of this, isn't there? People say video games will stop people interacting with each other. People complain that, you know, nowadays everyone's just buried in their smartphone all the time and, and somehow sort of life goes on. And if you look back, people had similar worries about radio and, and things like that. On the other hand, it's quite interesting because, I mean, one way you can think of the history of computing is it's sort of becoming more and more intimate and more and more personal as time goes on. And if you ever get to the stage where a computer is something that you, you put on your face or even that you have implanted into your body and you're literally viewing the entire world all the time through a computer screen, you're living in a sort of computer-mediated reality all the time, then I guess the difference is it's, it's maybe it's hard to step back out of that. And, you know, who knows what would happen if you, if you tried. You could say we're living in a computer-mediated reality already, of course. I mean, in theory, these devices could, you know, make anyone look like anyone else. You know, I could make the world outside look like I'm living on Mars. I could, you know, if you wanted to, you could retreat into an alternative reality with alternative facts and uh, alternative visuals if you, if you wanted to do that. A taster of that world is, in fact, arguably a form of augmented reality that we have already, which is listening to music. What that's doing is it's augmenting the world around us, the sound part of it, not the visual part of it, with music that we would rather hear, sounds that we would rather hear. Some people would say, well, it's terrible that people can go off into their own world listening to music on the train, but actually, I think it's rather good. Listen, Tom, Tim, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Ken. Are any of you Babbage listeners currently working with augmented reality or have any thoughts about where it might be put to good use? If so, send us your thoughts by email to radio at economist.com. In last week's show, we examined recent developments in bioprinting, literally printing out human body parts, such as skin, maybe someday organs. Understandably, there was a lot of interesting chatter on social media. Michel Fontenot wrote, quote, You all have no idea how wonderful this would be for those of us who have had to have organ transplants to stay alive. Transplanted organs don't last forever, so to be able to print new ones would be a miracle, unquote. Ben Schmidt wrote, It would probably cost you an arm and a leg. That was cute. 
And Victor Porben wrote, We all know the first thing that's going to be printed when it's commercially viable. Right, guys? Right. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Don't forget, you can comment on our show by joining us on Twitter at Economist Radio or on our Facebook page, The Economist. Finally, artificial intelligence is making waves in many global industries, largely by allowing computers to find intricate patterns in extremely large data sets, something that humans might find tricky or at least very time-consuming. But how can this be used to boost the productivity of people? Joining me in the studio to discuss one avenue of practical application is Dave Elkington, the chairman and CEO of Inside Sales, a company in Utah that believes technology and science are the key to enhancing human performance in the workplace. Where many people look at AI and think that it's going to destroy jobs, the interesting thing about InsideSales.com is they're actually making salespeople more effective through their technologies. Dave, thank you for being on the show. And thank you for having me. Great, thanks. So my first question is, how is it that the company is using artificial intelligence? What we do essentially is we use data. We observe patterns in the way salespeople do what they do, and we learn from that, and then we're able to make recommendations of better ways to engage with people. Okay, so first is, where does the data come from? If you've ever bought from any of our customers, we analyze that information in aggregate, but in a strictly normalized and anonymized approach. So we look at profiles, not individuals, but actually profiles or types of people. And then what we're doing is we're looking at the way those types of people behave in, in given situations. So we know things like CEOs actually have a tendency to behave in a certain way. Engineers tend to behave in a very clustered way. It's a concept called propinquity. And, and so what we're looking for are the, these categories of common behavior across common profiles. And then we're making prescription when you're engaging with somebody of a similar profile. So good salespeople have probably always done this. What are you doing that's new? Ultimately, the landscape of sales is changing. Sales traditionally are people who are, you know, 30, 40, 50 years old who have intuition built up in the last, you know, 20 years of, of their experience. What we're finding, however, is sales is moving to more of a, a millennial generation. In fact, in the last two to three years, we've seen the seller has moved into over 50% being a millennial worldwide. The challenge is millennials don't have that tenure behind them. They've got relatively short experience. And so what we're doing is we're giving the intuition that's developed from a a very mature, very experienced sales leader. And we're providing that through data and through machine learning and through artificial intelligence to somebody who's 26 years old. So what does this say about the jobs issue? You're making people more effective. Does that mean that we're going to have more salespeople just being more effective or we're going to be able to reduce the number of salespeople? You know, I think there's a fear that AI is going to replace people. I mean, that's really what's behind your question, in my opinion. And at the end of the day, people like to buy from people. They're not going to buy from computers. They're not going to buy from machine, especially if you're spending any amount of money and it's not a commodity. So I don't believe that we're going to see a decline in, you know, in jobs. I think what we're going to see is a much more better process. It's enhancing people's capability. It's enhancing the buyer's experience. And we, by the way, we've already seen this largely in the consumer space. We're beginning to finally see this in the enterprise space. Okay. Listeners are going to be wondering, is this just going to be another way to which companies are going to find better ways to sell me more stuff? Or could this be actually used in the service of humanity to sell me the stuff I actually really want? It's, it's obviously the latter. Um, and well, no, Jose, it's obviously that your interest is to say it's the latter. It's probably going to be both. 
consumers are, are creating the process. Consumers are demanding better experiences and better behavior. And so I think we're going to see an arbitrage opportunity where bad actors are going to act badly. And I think legitimately there's going to be a window where people are going to take advantage of artificial intelligence to try and push products, push process on people in ways that they're going to be uncomfortable with. But this is a consumer-driven society, and I think we're going to see a rejection of that. And I think the beautiful thing about artificial intelligence, it learns that. So in Silicon Valley, AI is just simply taking off, and every single person who has ever done a regression before in statistic is recasting themselves on LinkedIn as a data scientist. Is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? I think this is really risky for the industry. The reality is if you've got a PhD and you've learned how to do some kind of regression or some sort of a statistical analysis, you can change your title to, to be data scientist. You just got a 50% raise. And it's happening all over North America. We're even seeing it begin to happen in, in Europe. The challenge with that is you may have a historian who's analyzing your heart data. And that historian has no right to be analyzing your health data or your driving data or your child's location data or things like that. And what that means is you may be trusting a company to be providing some sort of value that could be a life-saving value with no right and no real experience to do it because it's not about just running a regression. It's about interpreting that data and knowing what it means and optimizing the algorithm. So right now, we're in the Wild West of artificial intelligence. We're learning new things. We're trying new things. But I actually think there's a lot of risk of who you trust the data to and are they treating that data correctly. Number two, who's that data scientist? Who's that, that expert who's analyzing your personal data? And are they really able to create value for you? Dave Elkington there. That's all for this episode of Babbage. Don't forget that you can send in all of your comments, questions, and feedback to radio at economist.com. And you can rate our podcasts in the App Store or on Acast. In London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.